So tonight we're going to talk uh, through a series on Psalms. This, uh, we, we are in a series of Psalms, and tonight we're going to look at specifically a style I know you guys have all been looking forward to, a lament. And so I don't know how I got that, but we're going to go there. So specifically, we're going to look at Psalm 51. Um, Psalm 51, the um, subscript at the top of the psalm says it is written to David after the prophet Nathan uh, came to him and revealed to him his sin with Bathsheba. And so because the story is so important uh, to understanding the psalm, um, I'm going to give you a few of the high points or low points, if you will, of this. So, um, so in, psalm, in 2 Samuel 11, it tells us that it was springtime, and, which is usually the time that kings go to war. However, David uh, this year did not go. He stayed in Jerusalem. And so one day when he was taking a walk on the um, roof of his palace, he saw a woman bathing. Um, seeing that she was beautiful, he inquired about her and found out her name was Bathsheba, uh, the wife of Uriah. And so letting his lust get the best of him, he sent for her, slept with her, and then sent her home. So since her husband was at war and um, was away, David figured he would get away with it, except for one small problem that a few months later Bathsheba came to him and told him that she was pregnant. So David's a smart guy. He can figure this out. Like, well, we can cover this up. And so um, he sends for Bathsheba's husband Uriah to be brought back to the battlefield. Now this is before the world was blessed by Maury Povich or Jerry Springer or DNA testing. And so really, you know, David figured that Uriah would just figure the kid was his. You know, he'd come back, sleep with his wife, and problem be solved. However, David ran into another problem because Uriah was a very loyal soldier and felt that it was unfair to eat and drink and sleep with his wife while his fellow soldiers were out in the battlefield. And so David even went so far as to get Uriah drunk, yet Uriah still didn't sleep with Bathsheba. So David had to come up with a new plan. And so David sent Uriah back to the battlefield with a note for the military commander. And then this note told the commander to tell to send Uriah to the front lines of the battlefield and then withdraw from him so he'd be killed. So this time, David's plan worked. Uriah was quickly killed, and news of that was brought back to David and Bathsheba. Once Bathsheba had gone through an appropriate period of mourning, David sent for her again and then took her as his wife. So needless to say, the, the chapter in Second uh, Samuel ends with the phrase, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. However, this isn't the end of the story. You see, David, uh, the Lord loved David and wanted, uh, didn't want to allow David to live in his sin. And so he sent um, the prophet Nathan to, da- to David. So Nathan tells David a story about a rich man. And this rich man had many sheep. Uh, and he also, there was a poor man and he had only one sheep. And, but he loved and cared for the sheep like his own child. So one day... A, a traveler visits the, visits the rich man, and um, instead of taking his own sheep, he takes the one sheep of the poor man and kills it and feeds it to his guest. So naturally, David is furious upon hearing uh, this story and demands that the rich man be killed for his crime. However, Nathan turns the tables on David and strikes him to the heart with just four words. He tells David, you are that man. And so... Many of you have probably heard this story. Um, 
even if you haven't, you probably can find similar stories like this、um, by picking up any newspaper or turning on the evening news. But the thing that has always been most difficult for me to grasp is that this story is about David. This is the David that killed Goliath, the David that God made king of Israel,、um, the David that God calls the man after His own heart before and after these events. And so, how can David be a man after God's own heart? David's response in Psalm 51, when Nathan comes to him and reveals his sin, gives us a lot of evidence on why that might be the case. In the midst of all his failures, why David is so special to God. And so, also, we're going to look at how I believe it gives us, us great motivation to look at our sin、uh, and confess our sins,、um, lamenting over them, but not being crushed by them. And so, before We read the psalm.、Uh, let's pray. Well, God, I pray that you would、uh, you would show up here tonight. That you would、uh, speak through your word, and you would just you would show us both the the depth of our sin and and the depth of your grace. That、uh, that we would be men and women after your own heart, and、uh, we wouldn't live in light of our performance before you, but we live. In light of our desperation for you, so God, we give this time to you in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So, so when Nathan uttered those words, "You are that man," the sin that David had tried so hard to cover up, to hide, was completely laid bare.、Uh, in that moment, David had the choice to continue to deny his sinfulness, or to embrace his helplessness and fall on his knees in dependence on God. And so, listen as we read Psalm 51,、uh, David's words in response to Nathan. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and then what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and my sin did my in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in your inward being, and you teach me wisdom in your in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your holy spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God, and my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will offer, be offered on your altar. So what makes David, a man after God's own heart. You see, while David was far from perfect, 
I believe he understood something that many of us in this room desperately need to grasp, namely the character of God and the, and the salvation that he offers. So listen to those first two verses again. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David appeals to God's character and the depth of his love and mercy. So I believe one of the reasons that we cringe when we hear words like lament or confession is because we, we don't have a proper view of who God is. Although most of us start out believing that salvation is not by anything that we can do, somewhere along the line we begin to embrace that in order to keep God's favor, we need to perform up to his standards. We begin, we begin to think of God more like Santa Claus than God revealed in his word. So author and speaker John Lynch calls it the Santa Claus is coming to town theology. And so, yeah, the song goes, you better not pout, you better not cry, <clears throat> you better watch out. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. See, he's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake, because Santa Claus is coming to town. <clears throat> you see, we, we begin to believe, embrace that God, like Santa Claus, is somewhere watching us. He's somewhere shaking his head, making a list of all the things that we've done wrong. And you know what? He's going to come back someday, and he's gonna, we're going to have to face all those things and the bad things that we've done. So we better get it right, and we better do it fast. So we begin to believe that the, prom, the problem is that we're just not trying hard enough, that we're just not taking this Christian thing serious enough. We begin to walk away from real life or our Bible studies with just more things to add to our list of things that we need to do better. So if this is at all the image of God that we have, <clears throat> then to seriously look at our sin and confess it to God and others is probably the last thing that any of us would want to do. However, what if this is not the God that we serve at all? What if grace not only brought us salvation, but also keeps us saved every day? What if my worth before God in no way depends on my performance, but completely depends on Christ's performance on my behalf? What if I understood that the depth of God's love for me in no way depends on the good or bad things that I do? That there's nothing that I can do that would cause God to love me any more? There's nothing I could ever do that would cause God to love me any less? That he loves me the same way he loves his only son? What if I understood that my very best day and my very worst day I'm desperately in need of God's grace. So notice that in Psalm 51, David is very honest and very straightforward about his sin and about the seriousness of it. However, this is why this is a lament. It's not full of despair and self-loathing, but it's full of hope. It's full of hope because it's full of God. David was, one of the, was in one of the stages of his life where he was clearly depending on himself with little awareness of his need for God. It was his recognition of his sin and his confession that brought him back to that need. It was the awareness of his sin that brought David back to an awareness of God. So Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, The Latin phrase Felix culpa, usually attributed to Augustine, put the hope in a slogan, O happy sin. 
Only when I recognize and confess my sin am I in a position to recognize and respond to the God who saves me from my sin. If I'm ignorant of or indifferent to my sin, I'm ignorant of and indifferent to the great and central news Jesus saves. In the Christian life, the primary task isn't to avoid sin, which is impossible anyway, but to recognize sin. The place of sin is not the place of accusation or condemnation, but of salvation. <clears throat> so before the, before the gospel can ever be good news in our lives, we have to realize the desperate situation that we're in. It's easy to sit and judge David uh, and feel good about ourselves for never doing anything as bad as he did. However, just as Nathan opened David's eyes to his sin, God wants to open our eyes as well. When Paul writes in Ephesians, you are dead and your trespasses and sin, he's not just talking, he's, he's talking about you. He's not just talking about the person next to you or the sinner down the hall, but you. You are that man. You are that woman. You are a sinner, helpless and hopeless, desperately in need of God's grace. That's what makes the gospel good news. Unless we recognize the seriousness and depth of our sin, there's no room for the gloriousness of the gospel to break in. Until we realize that the desperation of our slavery to sin, we'll never experience the glorious freedom that Christ has purchased for us. So this is the process that God has been bringing me through this past year. This fall, God continued to uh, impress me with the question, do you really believe the gospel? So I've been on staff for 10 years. I've been a Christian for over 20 years. Without question, I would say, yes, I believe the gospel. However, God began bringing me to the realization that in many ways in my life, I have not truly embraced the radical love and grace of Christ. Although I've always believed that salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone, apart from anything that I can do, since being a Christian, I've many times lived as if good works now add something to my salvation. This performance mentality that I fall into plays out in two, uh, two very evident ways. On one, on one hand, it plays out uh, in, the depth, in the, shame, the depth of the shame that I experience in my failures. You see, they're, they're many times crushing because I live as if my identity as a Christian is based on how, how my ability to live the life that God wants me to. On the other hand, they also, it also plays out in my pride in my obedience, as if I can do something to add to my worthiness before God. So in his book, uh, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, uh, which I highly recommend, um, Tulian Tavigian writes, in our bones we know that God hates bad works. We're not so convinced that he hates self-righteous good works just as much, if not more. In fact, the most dangerous thing that can happen to you is that you become proud of your obedience. Rules, regulations, good behavior, personal success, and performance are never the solution. Behavior modification cannot change the human heart. Outside cleanup never leads to inside cleanup. Only inside cleanup leads to outside cleanup, and there's only one who can do that. So this is what David is saying in verses 16 and 17. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So we need to understand that we're desperately in need of God's grace every day. We need to be humbly broken and contrite 
before him. You see, God is not calling us to act better, but rather to believe better. Only then will our actions begin to reflect our beliefs. So many of you are probably like me in some way and have, have lived a gospel of moralism rather than a gospel of radical grace. However, the problem with moralism, uh, things that we do, is that the true problem is not that we're bad people that need to be made good. Rather, we're dead people that need to be made alive. And our good works can never do anything about that. So I've tried to live a, a life of pleasing God on my own. Growing up in church, I knew what the Bible said to do and not do, and so I tried my best to live that out. However, every time I was only frustrated with the results and cried out, God, I'm so tired. I've tried so hard. I just, I can't do it. I'm now coming to see that this is exactly where God wants us. He tenderly replies, you're right. You can't do it. Only I can. Let me ch- let me change you as you humbly trust in me. One of the things that has most clearly helped me understand the heart of God in this is being a father myself. Um, you see, above all else, I want my children to know that I love them, apart from anything that they do. I tell them all the time, Daddy loves you and you can't do anything about it. I want them to be secure in my love with no fear of abandonment. I never want them to obey in an effort to try to get me to love them more or fear that I'll love them less in their failures. I want them to be able to come to me with anything that they've done, knowing they're safe in my love and secure as my children. Now, this isn't to say that I'm a a permissive father that never disciplines or corrects his children. As a loving father, I know what's best for my children, and so I have rules and family guidelines that will help protect them and bring them and bring good about in their lives. So needless to say, there's many times um, that my children disobey and the consequ- there are consequences of their actions. However, the main problem with their sinful action is not uh, that they need to behave better, but that they, that they didn't trust me. The problem is a lack of trust, not just a lack of doing the right thing or not. You can never disobey and be trusting God at the same time. And obedience without trusting is not really obedience at all. So God doesn't just want our obedience. He wants our trust. He wants our full dependence on him. Not so, not so he'll love us more, but because we believe that he is a good and loving father and he has our best. Now this is where the analogy breaks down. You see, God not only set, lovingly sets the best way that we should live, but he also is the one that changes our hearts and empowers us to live it. This year, I've really come to believe that one of the biggest dangers that we can have as humans is that we, should, that we would live as if we don't need God. I believe God is also very committed to helping us realize that we desperately do. So you see, many times in my life, I can fool myself and I think I'm, I'm doing a good job as a Christian on my own strength. This is... This is until I read the Bible. <laughs> See, I read the Ten Commandments, and I say, I've never killed anyone. I've never committed adultery. Uh, but then I read the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, You've heard it said, I do not murder. Well, I tell you, if you've had anger in your heart towards anyone, 
It's like murdering him in your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, I tell you, if you lust after a woman, that's the same as committing adultery in your heart. You see, I think one of the reasons that Jesus raises the standard so high is that for the very purpose of showing us that we cannot do it on our own. I think, that, I think I'm doing a good job loving others, and then I read, don't just love your, those who love you, love your enemies. And I, I just don't have that in me. I think I'm doing a good job loving my wife, and then I read, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And I see I'm nowhere close. So did God just tell us these things to frustrate us? No. He's calling us to these, in calling us to these things, he's clearly showing us that we can only do it by fully depending on him. Notice David's clear understanding of this, that it's only God that can change his heart. He's totally incapable of it on his own. God is the one that takes all the action. So starting in verse 10, uh, David says, You created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You be the one that restores to me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. William Temple writes, the only thing you can contribute to your, your salvation and to your sanctification is the sin that makes it necessary. So I don't know about you, but that's not a fun thing for my prideful self to hear. But I think there's tremendous freedom in that truth. And um, David clearly believes it. He believes that neither his salvation nor his sanctification ever depended on his ability not to sin or his performance. In fact, his sin was the very reason he needed saving and sanctified in the first place. So David understood his radical need for grace every day. It allowed him to truly repent of his sin and call upon God's mercy rather than being crushed by his sin. So what made David a man after God's own heart? It was obviously not his stellar performance, but rather that he intimately knew the God that he served and allowed that to permeate every aspect of his life. David consistently lived his life in the context of and dependence upon God. He fully believed that God would do all that he said he would do. The same attitude and trust that enabled David to uh, defeat Goliath and have victory over Goliath allowed David to believe that God would have victory over his sin as well. It was never about David's actions. It was always about God, the God that he served. David merely chose to live in light of who God is. So what about us? We need to stop trying to just act better. We need to start believing better. Believing that in Christ you're fully loved, fully approved, and completely secure apart from anything that you do. Only then will we stop turning to the idols in our lives in an effort to fulfill the needs that Christ has already met. So what about you? Do you really believe the gospel? I mean, really, truly believe that there's absolutely nothing that you can offer to God on your own. That God's grace didn't just save you, but that today, whether it's been a good day or a terrible day, that you're desperately in need of God's grace. And that his grace is big enough to overcome any sin. By whose power are you trying to live the Christian life? Your own, or are you dying daily to yourself and allowing him to empower you 
So the biggest thing I pray that you walk away with tonight is what I hope you walk away with from every real life talk or every Bible study that you attend. I hope you don't take away from this just more things to add to your checklist of things to do or not do. But that you see in a new way just how much you need Christ even to accomplish any of those things in the first place. I pray that you would begin to truly believe the gospel as you truly believe the gospel, that you would see that you're fully loved and approved apart from your performance. I pray that David, as like David, you'd be free to openly confess your sins both to God and to others without fear of condemnation and receive healing. Finally, as you reflect on the amazingness of the gospel, I pray that you would choose to join us next week at our outreach week and have the opportunity to share this with others. Not out of a duty, but as a privilege of sharing this amazing message of Christ, message of grace. So I'm going to close with a quote by Tulian, again from his book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. He says, The world isn't captivated by people trying to give impressions that they have it all together. That's not what draws them. What captures their attention is the sight of humble, desperate, dependent people who acknowledge their sin and point to their Savior as the only one who can rescue us. The world, in other words, needs our confession, not our competence. Tragically, moralism is what people most outside the church think we're talking about when we say gospel or Christianity. That's what enters their minds. Most people inside the church give most people outside the church the impression that Christianity is all about observing certain codes or behaviors of behaviors or abstaining from others. It's all about rules and standards and good behavior and cleaning up your act. We're really good at communicating that to the world. The only way we're able to reach people for Christ is to differentiate legalism from the gospel. From a human standpoint, we have to help them understand that the rules and regulations and standards of behavior, standards and behavior modification are not the heart of Christianity. We have to show them that the gospel is radically different. We need to somehow make it clear that Jesus came first not to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. That the primary goal of the gospel is not to bring out is to bring about mortal resurrection, not moral reformation. Christianity is not the move from vice to virtue, but the move from virtue to grace. We need to demonstrate and articulate this difference. We need to be able to distinguish between religion, all about my need to do, and the gospel, all about what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Well, God, I do pray that you would just, you would change our hearts, that we would see our need for you in a new way, that we would see our sin in a new way, and rather than be crushed by it, that it would draw us into a relationship, deeper relationship with you, a deeper dependence upon you. Jesus, I thank you that you fully love us, you fully approve of us, not because of anything that we do, but because of who you are. And so, God, I pray as it, as David uh, just cried out to you and came to you in the depth of his sin, that we would be able to do that as well. And we'd find healing, we'd find mercy, we'd find grace in our time of need. And that we'd see that need continuing every day. So God, I pray that you would use us, use people in this room to change this campus. But it wouldn't be about us having it all together. But it'd be about us depending on you. God, I thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.